Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. The work of women or the work of people who are not the dominant population just doesn't tend to be considered interesting or valuable enough to write down. It's usually decades or centuries later, still the same dominant population going back into history to find those stories and deciding what then is interesting enough to that person to retell. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Tara Nuren is a freelance writer, consultant, and educator who focuses on the culture, history, and business of beer. Her most recent book, A Woman's Place is in the Brew House, a forgotten history of alewives, brewsters, witches, and CEOs, covers these exact topics, celebrating contributions and influence of female brewers. Our conversation focuses on her story, history considered or presented from a feminist viewpoint or with special attention to the experience of women and forces such as archival silences, and historiographical biases that have erased women's voices from brewing history. A Women's Place is in the Brew House is an important addition to the collective body of beer history on account of not only its well-researched historical focus, but also of the important social questions it raises. Let's dive and get heavy. Tara Nuren, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm excited. A Woman's Place is in the Brew House, a forgotten history of alewives, brewsters, witches, and CEOs, was released in 2021. As usual, I'm about six to eight months late on interviewing the author. And this is a book about the historical role and roles that women played in the development of beer and beer culture and everything else sort of around it. Were you surprised by 2021 that a work like this had not been compiled and released? And why was it important for you to put this out in 2021? You know, I would have been surprised if I haven't been cut, if I hadn't been covering this topic for 17 years. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's such a glaring, was such a glaring absence, um, considering that women have been society's first brewers throughout time and space. Um, but you know, having been one of the only reporters to specialize in women and beer coverage over nearly these past two decades, um, I know how much, you know, of a gap there is. So, in fact, the, the reason I wrote it is um, because my mentor, Terry Farendorf, who uh, founded the Pink Boot Society, the international nonprofit for women in the um, beverage alcohol space, um, we were having a conversation and she said, Tara, no one's written a book about the history of beer, history of women in beer before, and you need to write it. You're the one. Um, so, yes, I am very glad that there is now one overarching history, and hopefully there will be many more. In fact, I know of others potentially coming down the pipeline. 2021 was obviously a pretty interesting year, an important year in beer's history, and in particular for women and having their voices get recognized. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of that contemporary current that was happening around the time that this book may have been coming up, just to jog our memories a little bit? Sure. Well, in May of 2020, 
2021, a um, production manager at a brewery in Massachusetts called Notch Brewing. Fabulous place. So Brianne Allen, she was um, overseeing the construction of a satellite brewery. And one of the construction workers was giving her a hard time. And this is an experience that pretty much every female in the beer industry endures, you know, with some degree of frequency. Um, Basically, just sort of doubting that she knew anything about beer. Do you really drink this stuff? Do you know what you're doing? And uh, she got frustrated and put the question out on her Instagram page saying or asking people, um, what experiences do you have with sexism in the beer industry? And people were ready to pour their stories out. Um, so I tend to refer to it in shorthand as sort of the Me Too reckoning coming to craft beer full three years, I think, after the Me Too movement really blew up in, in American society, in Holly, you know, starting in Hollywood. Where I was in the book was it was literally about to travel across the Atlantic Ocean to be printed. Um, the manuscript was done, it was approved, and I sent a frantic email to my editor saying, do we have time to get something in about this? Because, you know, we're about to publish this book that says nobody's ever talked about this issue before because pretty much nobody had ever talked about the issue before publicly. Luckily, I was able to get in, you know, literally about two sentences to at least acknowledge that it had happened. Um, but yeah, we're, we're coming up on a year now and I will be very interested to see what kind of coverage, you know, anniversary coverage it gets. It is important that it was mentioned in the book would have been an ironic and horrible omission to have had in the history. So fortuitous timing in that respect that you're able to get it in. Why do you sort of think that this work hadn't existed before? You can answer hypothetically, or if you've talked with other writers, like, why do you think this didn't exist before? Uh, well, you know, you and I have talked about this concept of archival silences, and you mentioned the word her story versus history. And, um, you know, language can reflect some very deep um, gender biases, all kinds of biases, actually. But if you think about the word history, it's literally his story. <laughs> um, and so what tends to happen is the stories of... Everybody but the dominant population in any population, those stories don't tend to get written down. Um, they don't tend to get excavated later on. Um, and in the case of women throughout so much of his history, her story, women were not allowed to own property. They couldn't act on their own behalf legally. So they don't show up in business records. They don't show up in legal records. Um, they don't even show up with their own first names when they are prominent enough to have obituaries, obituaries written about them. So, you know, so often the work of women or the work of people who are not the dominant population just doesn't tend to be considered interesting or valuable enough to write down. And then it's usually decades or centuries later, still the same dominant population going back into history to find those stories and deciding sort of what then is interesting enough to that person to retell. And so you've got this sexism, this bias, bias happening for all these reasons in the first place, and then it shows up again when that story is retold. And so um, those are some of the reasons um, this story hadn't been written before. Um, 
beer had beer making has been considered women's work for so long and again you know women's work eh, not that interesting to write down according to whoever's actually literate enough in the population to write down those stories let's dwell on this archival silences point a little bit because it's an important part of how you sort of construct your arguments in this book is that archival silences and sort of historical silences and almost even like amnesias of reconstructed memories in a way are an important part of why this hadn't existed and how sort of different epochs are imagined and reimagined by subsequent populations. Can you give like an example of an omission that you may have found particularly interesting while writing or researching this book? Absolutely. If you don't mind, I'd like to give three and I will try to be very succinct. All right. Well, these three stand out the most to me as far as specific women go. One, beer history geeks have all heard about New Albion. It was the first ground up independent brewery built in the United States after prohibition. And people who are really into beer history can tell you that Jack McAuliffe was the founder. He um, opened it in 1976, closed it in 1982. Well, what I didn't even know until I started researching this book, and this was maybe my greatest aha moment in the entire process, was that there were three people who founded New Albion Brewing, and two of them were women. And those two women, guess what they did? They funded the entire operation. So um, one of them kind of pieced out after about a year or two. Uh, but the other one, Susie Stern Dennison, was there until the bitter end. Um, in fact, when they closed the brewery, she got stuck with the $12,000 bill. Um, and that was $1982. So there's one story. And the quick coda to that story is that because Susie's name is now out there, and I was not the first, but I was close to the first person to bring you know, make her name public. She just the other day or, you know, a few weeks ago was invited to brew with the Seattle Pink Boots Society chapter for International Women's Brew Day. Um, and that was really just this beautiful thing that she's in her 80s and she got to go brew with them. Um, and it was the first time she'd brewed, do the math since the <laughs> since she closed the brewery in 1982. Um, I'm not being very succinct, but story number two, Melly Pullman was the first female brew master and co-owner. She co-opened or co-founded um, Wasatch Brewing in Utah. Um, she didn't stay very long, but as you know, Wasatch is still open. And um, there used to be this very long history of the brewery on the website. And it mentions Greg Scherf, her co-founder, several times. Didn't mention her once ever at all. Um, I've now been told that um, that is being corrected. <laughs> and then the third story was brought to my attention after the book was published. Nancy Crosby was one of the first people to write down beer styles in the United States. And she was actually, that led to the creation of the BJCP. And her name is not mentioned in the BJCP history. Um, so I will be contacting them very soon about that. Those are incredible examples of people that have been involved in beer at a, like a very important time in the history of this country. Within your sort of like narrative structure of the book, you embed them within the historical components too. There's an interesting way that you have of bringing these past anecdotes of different epochs into the present very immediately and thematically. How did you sort of choose, because there's so many historical parts that, uh, uh, and time frames and people you could have chosen going even further back, 
how did you sort of choose the different people or figures or goddesses? Because you could have also written a 5,000 page book considering the number of laps that you did around history. Uh, well, when I conceived of this book and pitched it, um, it was probably going to be a 3,000 page book, <laughs> volumes and volumes of encyclopedias, um, because I intended to write like the definitive, absolute, complete history. And thankfully for my sanity and my pocketbook, my uh, publisher, when they came back to me, they were like, we really love this idea. Um, we're not really sure that the way you have proposed it is going to sell. How would you feel about cutting it down to oh, 300 pages? And I thought, well, as long as I can potentially write a part two, then I'm okay with that. Um, so what ended up happening is, like you suggest, I had to curate and curate and curate. And it that's what that's probably what keeps me up the most at night is that so, so, so many women could not be included. And what's so fascinating, and this is this is, I guess, a good problem. Um, when I first started writing the proposal, it was around 2016. And um, there were so many fewer women in the industry um, than even there were four years ago when I really got down to the heart of the research that it would have been a very different book had I researched and written it a few years earlier. There's some, I, I call them bold face names because I'm a journalist, right? So like prominent women who everybody knew about in the industry in 2016 who didn't even make the book at all because by then there were so many other, so many additional women to write about that I felt like to represent the industry as a whole, I had to then, yeah, I don't want to say I had to take them out, but I just, I, I wasn't able to put them in just to sort of, had I, had I kept them in, I would have had to give short shrift to like sort of the broader picture. Going into this, you're a writer for Forbes and you do a lot of news work and you do a lot of reporting and contemporary topics. What was it like kind of doing more archival work and doing a lot more historical research? Hard. <laughs> um, you know, in part for the reasons we're, we're talking about, um, you know, I would be looking for proof of stories that I had heard over the years, but because, you know, women's stories, like we've said, don't tend to get written down, people of color, um, everybody who's not the dominant population. And so I would hear, for instance, oh, well, um, you know, there were a lot of enslaved people who brewed throughout early America. And I would like try to find information and I wouldn't be able to. Um, in fact, it's only after the I published the book that I was able to find the name of the um, enslaved woman, Ursula Granger, who would have been brewing in the early years of Monticello with Thomas Jefferson, for instance. So she's not in the book. I didn't find her in time. So there was that problem. As a journalist writing about something contemporary, I usually know when I've gotten enough information to feel like I'm telling as full a story as I can within whatever time or space parameters I have. Um, writing history, you can always always look for more. And 
you know, I, I would know that there were these stories out there in the world that I wanted to include that I wasn't able to find, you know, they, because they were too buried or I didn't, I had a deadline. I ran out of time in some cases. Um, so it was, it was nerve wracking <laughs> to be honest. Um, and I very much do hope I'm able to write a second edition um, so that I can go back and fill in some of those gaps. You mentioned Terry Ferendorf and the Pink Boots Society. Do you feel as though, like, historically, there were other Pink Boots Societies? They just may have looked a little bit different or may have had an equivalent power within their contemporary society? That's a great question. Nobody's asked me that before. And I've, I've given it a bit of thought and I think, no, um, I know that at least in craft brewing, there are the few women who were around in the, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties, didn't really think about their gender so much. I've got this great line in the book that says something like, I mean, I would see this woman and that woman once in a while at a conference, but we didn't like huddle up in a corner together or anything. Um, so at least in contemporary America, no. And in earlier civilizations, it was just work as we said. So, you know, something that you did along with minding the kids and cooking and shearing the sheep and, and everything else. Um, so women were not getting together to, you know, empower themselves or network or anything. And, and that probably would have been viewed with a great deal of suspicion in most places had that been the case. Um, now, I guess you maybe you could make an argument to say that nuns have brewed in European abbeys for thousands of years. Um, so that's clearly a sisterhood, literally. But as I, I've never encountered anything that resembled the Pink Boot Society. And where do you sort of think the turning point would have been? Because when I think of our contemporary craft society, it's not just sort of the work that we associate with brewing as an occupation. There's like an incredibly strong social component to the craft beer. It's a revolution precisely because there's a social component to it. It's not just a working revolution. There are social components that make it something a little bit more. Where do you sort of see a turning point happening that shifted things, not just in terms of the craft beer revolution, but more the role of women within it being a strong force? Well, I think two dates, two years come to mind within the past decade. And, and let me know if this isn't exactly what you're asking. But um, a lot of people said 2013 was a pivot year when they really started to notice many more women attending festivals, working at festivals, working in other aspects of the industry. It used to be that where I would see women working in the beer world, they tended to work in the lab or work in some sort of office function, often HR, or they would work in sales. And usually brewery sales, not even distro so much. 2013, I, along with a lot of people I interviewed, said that they felt that women really started working as brewers and working in the cellar, working in production at that time. Um, and I know at least in New Jersey, where I live, 2013 was the year that a lot more breweries opened because that's when we finally 
updated our prohibition era brewery laws. And so with so many more breweries opening, that opens up a lot more jobs for women um, and also gave women a lot more opportunities to become owners. The second year that I would point to would be last year and then ongoing for this year, based on what we were talking about before, the Me Too reckoning. Um, women are talking now much more than we ever were. Um, I see it all the time. I mean, there are... And, and part of that actually, I think, is because of Pink Boots. So with Pink Boots chapters sprouting up more than ever before. It used to be sort of like a much more centralized organization. And now there are dozens of chapters around the world. And so there are events where local women are getting together some in some places once a month to talk about beer. And with me going and talking to so, much, so many of these groups and talking about these issues and these women talking with one another about the issues of being a woman in the industry and some of the secrecy because of the Me Too reckoning has some of the secrecy and fear, the veil of the secrecy and fear has been lifted. Um, these conversations are much more robust. They're much more out in the open. They're much more frequent. I sense a lot more vulnerability and honesty in these conversations than I've ever seen before. And that, that goes for myself as well. I was at the Pink Boots Internet National Conference a couple of weeks ago, and um, we I moderated a forum about this. And I would say practically every conversation I had just in the hallway, wherever, whether I knew the woman, woman or not, we were like, so really, like, how you doing? Are you okay? What's going on for you? I don't think those conversations were really happening outside of with like maybe some very close friends in very quiet corners before. In terms of this sort of being an international sort of movement, we're recording this at the end of March and I've seen throughout the entire month on my social feeds, just all of these different collaborative events celebrating women as brewers and as different members of companies in the craft beer space. It was actually really remarkably more than the past and obviously the pandemic had something to do with that, just in terms of the visibility. But I guess in terms of from an international perspective, since you're also by writing a history, you're having a certain level of international scope to what you're doing, maybe taking a comparative perspective, how much of our history in the US from the 80s on were you seeing in other parts of the world in your research? I think women in international craft brewing is a much more recent phenomenon than it has been here in this country. Other countries around the world have really modeled themselves in many ways after the American craft brewing revolution, but it hasn't happened until the past 10 or 20 years or so. So they are in some ways pretty significantly. Um, we've had a lot more time <laughs> because our craft, craft beer industry is, is older. Um, now that said, in researching the book, I was happily shocked to meet some women who have been doing amazing things in craft beer in different countries for more than a decade. Um, you know, Mexico, for instance, other Latin American countries um, have these women who have been like running judging competitions and running schools and, and owning breweries for, you know, 13, 15 years. Um, so that was really fun to learn about. The other thing that Europe has that we don't have in this country is a brewing tradition thousands of years old, right? And so what you see not very often, but we, I do expect we'll see it more and more, is these multi-generational family breweries that are now run by women 
for the first time in hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, the Meinl sisters um, own a brewery in Bavaria and they're 11th generation brewers and owners and they're the first women um, and their examples, you know, popping up everywhere. And that's really heartening to see. And I mean, and what's interesting is that they have to fight stereotypes that are even more entrenched than they are in this country. You know, I mean, what do we think of before we think of the bearded guy with the tats? <laughs> sorry to rely on that old trope, but truthfully, you know, here in the United States, like we think about the big burly German beer brewer, right? The the brewmaster, and they've got that to try to work against. Um you know, some with with more ease than others, um, but you know they're they're pushing forward and they're doing awesome things. That's something that I think is interesting too, because so much of this is very new in our country, and we went from having less than ten breweries in the United States in the seventies when the Homebrew Act was passed, all the way up to today where we have nine thousand. Not as many, at least Western European countries, have that same tradition because they didn't have the same types of like prohibition movements and they didn't have those same types of social and political movements that created the context for that type of level of closure. The people that are a part of the contemporary craft movement there are butting up directly with people that are, like you're saying, 11th generation. There's also kind of an interesting learning opportunity within that type of coexistence, I imagine. Well, it's interesting too, and you do raise a really good point that I'm very interested in learning more about is that when you do have such an entrenched beer culture that goes back so long to even taking gender out of it, just being a craft brewer in certain parts of Germany and it's getting better, but it, it, they're just meeting with such resistance and such suspicion, right? Um, and that, that doesn't even start like to get into the Reihinska boat with, where you've got craft brewers who want to put crazy stuff in their beers and, you know, for so long, you haven't been allowed to, and you're still not allowed to in certain, a lot of parts of the country. So yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, there hasn't been this prohibition either. So remember, as you alluded, like what to when homebrewing was legalized, people in this country in the seventies started homebrewing because they, a lot of them had been to Europe, <laughs> had really good beer, came back home, couldn't get anything like that and decided their only option was to make it themselves. Well, they they've never had to do that in Europe. So the, the 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 societal forces are different and it's really cool to watch Germany's craft brewing industry grow in particular. I'm very interested in Germany's craft craft brewing industry for the reasons we're talking about. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Tara Nuren in a moment. There are a few things happening in the world of heavy hops and scorched tundra that I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorched Tundra present shows at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Tara Nuren. 
let's shift a little bit. I want to get back into some of the perspective that you're taking, speaking in broad strokes about a woman's place is in the brew house. So tell me a little bit more about what her story means to you and where sort of your perspective and where you're standing when you take your perspective and how you're approaching this book. Well, I've been a feminist longer than I knew what knew the word. And I've been a social justice crusader longer than I have known the term. And so it just never really made sense to me as I started writing about beer that there would be so few women in it. And the ones who were in it were just viewed as such anomalies and and really just had to battle and still do still just have to battle so much for for respect it just i don't know maybe i'm naive i just don't i really don't get it um and and you know you see the women who succeed in in this industry particularly i would argue um in production and um i'm i'm generalizing here but generally they do have to work so much harder they do have to prove that they can lift the heavy stuff they do have have to read and 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 then find a mentor to really give them opportunities. And so I just feel very deeply that women should be recognized for their efforts um, in beer and, and everywhere else. You know, obviously oppression exists everywhere. A big part of my book was really sort of like tracing the patriarchy and how it formed and and how it has adapted throughout for 200,000 years, I argue, to continue to keep the status quo, continue to ensure that women and people of color and, and non-gender conforming and, you know, anybody who isn't the dominant culture doesn't have an easy time accessing um, equity in whatever shape that takes. So I guess, I guess we could say, I feel like it's, it's my contribution or I'd like to see it as my contribution to a more just world to give women recognition, to give them respect, to, to remind women and men that this is a proud tradition that women actually owned first. <laughs> and, and what I hear from women I'm meeting around the country who have read it is just this deep gratitude. I have a lot of women who are sort of in their first few years of brewing coming to me um, to tell me what the book means to them. And, and some of them are crying. Some of them are telling like very deep personal stories of, of growing up and what it means to them to be in the beer industry, fighting like everyone in their family because their family doesn't drink because they're religious. And, and you know, those stories aren't unique to women, but when the women are going through all that and then being told that they don't belong there anyway, <laughs> it makes it harder. To, to feel proud of what they're doing, to, to feel like, to feel ownership of it. And so these, these women who I'm talking about, who have been in the industry, not quite, you know, generally not very long, thanking me because the book is showing them sometimes for the first time that this is a community they belong to. And, you know, when you're one or one or two or three women working in production 
in your brewery or a different part of the industry that, you know, where you're not surrounded by a lot of people like you, it's really easy to lose sight of that. Even in the best work environments, it's easy to lose sight of that. Do you think that the beer world that is most visible to people, the larger producers, do you think that they do enough to make women feel included in beer? That's a really good question, too. Um, I think the macro breweries have better structures for women, you know, maternity leave, lactation stations, things like that. Um, And I know that they are doing some things to promote women to top positions, to raise the visibility of those women. I mean, as a reporter, I'm constantly getting press releases asking if I want to interview this top beer executive or this top beer executive female. Um, I get that more from the spirits industry because I actually think the spirits industry is ahead of the beer industry in this way. What I don't know, to be honest, is whether it's performative or not. I mean, to some extent, you could argue, well, what does it matter? These women actually do have these jobs, right? They are in the C-suite. Hopefully they're earning what their male counterparts make. I don't know that either. But I would like to think that it's actually because these massive corporations do see that that's important for reasons that go beyond PR. And one of the reasons, actually, not just that's beyond equality and fairness is when you're talking about having a diverse workforce, you can better speak to greater numbers of potential customers. Um, you know, you, you, if you, if everybody who works for you looks the same and comes from the same background and thinks the same, that's, you're not, you're probably not going to have a lot of creativity there, or at least not have a lot of creativity that's going to embrace people to be able to grow your, your customer pool. So it's important even just for the bottom line (laughs) to have a diverse workforce. So hopefully, and I do think we will continue to see more of it and, and hopefully more women in the very top positions and not just occupying like chief marketing, you know, I see a lot of chief marketing officers, chief diversity officers, chief HR officers, and that's great. Um, I would like to see more CEOs and presidents being female. Is it because it is those specific roles that makes you think that some of this is performative on the part of those larger companies? Yes. Um, Yeah. I don't think I have anything else to say about that. Yes, that's a really good question. (laughs) It's a complicated thing because, yeah, I want these people to be in positions where they can influence decisions and where they can be someone that someone else can look up to and say, hey, I want to have that job. I want to aspire to what that person has. And without people in those positions, it doesn't set an example for someone else to want. It's important in that respect. In some way, I wonder about how genuine it is. And I feel the same about like advertising too, where it can get really cliche and stereotypical and uh, frankly, like all kinds of fucked up. And the spirits world's horrible at this too. I think they have a bigger compensation, especially the brown spirits world gap to have to overcome. My word's not yours. You could say that if you want, but (laughs) I think it's a challenging balance for executives to have to figure out. 
And this is sort of like what we were thinking about before earlier is that the past and what has happened can be viewed as something that is sunk or that is sort of lost in a way and we can't do a whole lot about it. Now, you've written a whole book, so clearly we need to see that as important. And, you know, we spent the last half hour talking about why that is important, but it's also very much about the present and the future. It comes around because these performative things can also sort of perpetuate problems too. They're new problems, but I want to see more personally, like as someone who thinks everything's broken all the time, I guess. Well, you know, what you're saying is making me think of two things. One, in in thinking about the present and how we make things better going forward, it's a pipeline issue, right? So if you're a female who gets promoted to CMO, it's because there are any more women working in beer marketing who are at the level to get promoted to CMO. So we need more people entering at all levels in production and also, you know, every job so that eventually it's like politics, right? Like, you know, you got to fill the school boards and the city councils and everything with a diverse group of candidates so that eventually one of them can be president. The other thing that I'm thinking of is a story that um, uh, comes out of Odell Brewing. And, you know, they're a phenomenal company in so many ways. And um, Corky and, and Wynn are two of the three founders of Odell's of Odell with Doug. So it was one man and then his, his um, sister and his wife. And um, when the three of them were transition, were like semi-retiring a couple of years ago, transitioning out of their day-to-day roles, they were reconfiguring the board structure. And the two women had to really fight hard to get the other men on the board. I think it was all men except for the two of them to put the taproom management position on the board because the board members didn't see that as important enough. <laughs> That's going to be a job that because of these pipeline issues and because of, you know, all these other things that we're talking about is is you're going to be more likely to have a female taproom manager than like a female director of operate brewing operations or something. Right. And so we need to value. And, and so they had to make the argument, well, this, this person oversees all these different, you know, tasting rooms and all these budgets and all these, all this staff, of course they should be on the board, but it was, it was a fight that they finally won, but it was a fight. That's an interesting perspective. And as someone who has managed restaurants and bars, I like the fact that this is something that's thought of because there are so many responsibilities that that type of position has. And this may not be the case for Odell's necessarily because they're a huge production facility, but for a lot of companies, that's a really important position. The more and more that you're relying on that income as a baseline for your operating income, that being one, but also this notion, as you were sort of saying about creating new opportunities by acknowledging other positions that may not have otherwise have been viewed as executive decisions as such in order to create those opportunities. Yeah. I mean, what it, it's a matter of asking ourselves, like, what do we value, right? What do we value? And you, you said that and the more the tap room is going to, you know, become a greater part of percentage of, of income, you know, in, in some breweries, that's the majority of the income, right? 
So they shouldn't be viewed as like, oh, just a server position, quote unquote. Yeah. There was one more thing I wanted to talk about here. It's something I've thought of a lot and may have discussed with another guest in the past. I don't remember, but it's a little more abstract, but I think you're the right person for it. When we think about all of this sort of like technical knowledge that's proliferated about beer throughout history, how it's made, how temperature is controlled, how that's changed over time, how ingredients have been made and how it's changing over time. One of the sort of like overarching themes of all of it is control. There's always some type of frankly like fucked up amount of control that humankind, man or woman, is attempting to exert over nature in order to shape it into what it wants. It's like a really unorganic thing for this thing that we want to think of as very organic and very artistic, but it's actually highly processed and highly artificial, regardless of whether you're using lactose or not. Do you think that this sort of squares a little bit with the gender roles and with sort of how the will of the maker plays into all of this? So tell me if this is not the direction you're trying to go, but what I thought of as you were, and you're smiling, so I'm encouraged. (laughs) What I thought of as you were asking the question was what it means to civilize and what it means to farm. So, you know, if you go back to beer making as it was in hunter-gatherer days, we were foraging wild ingredients and the process was extremely natural. There was like no human intervention, right? Or very little. Um, And then as soon as we started farming, we were plundering mother earth. I mean, it's, it, to be honest, like it reminds me of rape a little bit, you know, if you can, if you consider that mother earth is viewed as feminine and then man is, you know, beating her into submission to be able to grow in a controlled way so that we can have things to, we can, we can better shape the outcome to make things look and taste and feel the way we want them to, then um, yes, very much. And I think that's a really cool topic that I don't know nearly enough about. I certainly never get into a conversation about it. So I don't think it's something people talk about. And um, so, so, in asking your question, are you thinking about more modern? Like, or did I get to what you were asking? Yeah, let's keep on it. So we can take it either way. To me, it seems as though there's a point in the industrial revolution where a lot of agriculture changes and how we view what we can do driven by technology changes our relationship to land, our relationship to food, our relationship to each other, because time and space begin to move in a really different way. And I think that we see this happening more and more and more quickly with globalization. In today's context, with craft beer in particular, I know I'm lassoing a lot together here. It seems just so bizarre to me the amount of obsessiveness that occurs over maintaining control over all of these aspects that can shape a beverage, how much in the sensory literature there is about what an idealized thing is and what it's supposed to be like and what your expectations are and how you use technology to control it. And I like what you sort of said earlier about Mother Earth and about how you can implant some like gender roles within that in some way because it's people taking from something. But to me, within the 
sort of, again, this sort of like control narrative, it feels as though it parlays really, really well with a big part of the narrative of your book, if I may, is that this is about erasure and about replacing with a new narrative. And to me, it's the same impulse of control in some way. Yeah, you know, that is, I love this question. The more that we're we're teasing it out, two things. One, when you say industrial revolution, it reminds me that very often progress, and I'm going to air quote that, um, is bad for women. Um, because if you look at the various industrial revolutions I cover in the book, they were horrible for women brewing because women then, you know, weren't able to access the capital that, so, so the industrial revolution would create like new abilities for beer, right? Like you could refrigerate it, you could transport it farther, you know, you, you could lager it and, and brew it in the winter if you had access to capital and space and network and relationships that would allow you to do that. But women didn't, (laughs) you know, and not just because they weren't allowed to own property or were illiterate, but because it was a cottage industry that they just did like in the margins between all the sheep shearing we were talking about earlier and the cooking and the child raising. So that's one thing. And then also, if you look at, we can talk about Germany as like the perfect example in Reinheitsgebot, the purity laws, the food safety laws, you know, might have had some good intention to them, but they made it impossible for women to be able to compete because women didn't have money, couldn't buy hops, couldn't buy the ingredients necessary to make this like standardized beer, right? Because they were just foraging and putting whatever herbs and, you know, botanicals and whatnot, ingredients they could find in their beers. So the standardization that came along in the Middle Ages in Europe made it so that women in many places weren't even legally allowed to brew beer anymore. So, right, you know, there's obsession over quality and whatnot, but it also, you know, really changed the, it changed the course of, of, civilization as far as beer goes because women just couldn't do it anymore. I tend to be a little critical of things like untapped and these sorts of, we could call them like pretty democratized or open source sort of like rating stuff, contemporary social media stuff. I tend to be a little like cranky about that stuff, but to me, there's a lot of like new power within that that's really, really interesting because what it's doing is it's actually really pushing against the these forces that you were just describing are like, we call them like institutional forces, right? Like these are the things that as a group gets closer and closer to attaining something, that institutional force then moves the bar further and further away. I think Untapped, what makes it really interesting as a social force is that it actually sort of speeds up the progress of the smaller groups because it gives voice to all these people in a way that the BJCP certainly can't and that all of these other structures within the industry that are supposed to teach us what is right also sort of they silence in their own way. Whereas Untapped is like, nope, anyone can just say anything. And the more people say, the better, which has issues too. But I think it's a new sort of leveling in a certain way that I think is problematic, but also really, really interesting when you think of it in light of the sort of like institution versus small group cottage industry structure that you were referring to um so that's a that's a cool point and i tend to be a little what did you say grumpy about yourself cranky (laughs) i i can be a little cranky about those platforms also because 
they we see how easily they the majority does kind of end up taking over those forums too. Those those more democratic forums. There's groupthink and there's shaming, you know. And and so what happens? You walk into t- ten out of eight out of ten breweries and eight out of ten taps is a hazy IPA, you know, because that's what everybody says that they want on the the ratings um, forums. So um, yeah, I don't know if I have an overarching point to that, but it's cool. Like you're saying, like it does sort of flatten, it democratizes things. And yet I feel like human nature has a way of always, and this is how you started the question. I think it's human nature to always sort of try to elevate oneself above others so that we can be cool or feel part of the in crowd. And, and, you know, getting back to hunter gatherer days, I guess it's a matter of survival, right? Cause if you're not in the in crowd, you might get picked off and die. Um, <laughs> so, so maybe, maybe I shouldn't hate on that so much, but yeah, it, it, it's unfortunate that, that there is a silencing that goes on in those two. That's an important sort of ending point in a way, is that these platforms where the mass just can go off and do their thing, it's not always great stuff that occurs on there. And that's not just us being cranky people that like beer in a certain way and are skeptical of that type of groupthink when it comes to how it dictates the decision making for the makers and for the producers, but it also can have social consequences as well. This has been a fantastic conversation, Tara. Thank you so much for coming on Heavy Hops. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. I genuinely hope we get to have a real beer sometime IRL and (laughs) totally geek out on these, um, you know, philosophical, (laughs) socio-philosophical topics. Definitely. Well, thank you and best of luck. (laughs) Thanks so much.